True Crime Uncensored. I am Burl Bear. The man next to me, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. Hello. Hello. Part two of Kevin Sullivan's explanation of how Ted Bundy destroyed his life. Back. Kevin. Hey, Burl. How you doing? Fine. I was just telling people you were minding your own business, writing books <laughs> about General Custer and saying, this is getting me nowhere. I need to find a serial killer and find one fast. Theodore came along. <laughs> yeah. Is that kind of how it happened? Because Mark Boyer printed out for me a, a timeline of Ted Bundy. And I figured, where did Kevin Sullivan get this epiphany of, my God, I, this is like playing Sim City. I could build a whole career based on this guy. <laughs> That's true. It looks like it happened, too. <laughs> yeah, you didn't plan that. I mean, when that first book came out... I didn't plan it. Didn't plan it. Didn't know it was going to go beyond one book. No, didn't no. Didn't know I was going to write the one book until uh, that, those other things happened, and well, okay. I decided to do it. Let's yeah. let's go back before McFarland even got your proposal, okay? Okay. This is a great similarity great. you and I have, is that both of us had our first books from McFarland. Yes. Yes, a great publishing company, some very interesting books. And I think they publish publish two, three hundred books a year, and they've got some really... Oh, good stuff. Really good, really yeah, good they got stuff. a lot of really good stuff there. So anyway. Anyway, so if, we, you want, uh, if, if, if you want me to go into it... Um, I want you to know how, how it was. You were sitting there minding your own business. You went, damn, you know, Lord yeah. forgive me. I think if I got on this Bundy wagon... <laughs> I could ride it <laughs> into eternity. <laughs> yeah, well, he hadn't corrected me on it, so I guess I'm okay. Yeah. But in any, but in any event, yeah, yeah, it, it all happened because I had a chance to meet Jerry Thompson, and he was a friend of Jim Massey's, uh, who was my friend here in Louisville. He's passed on now, but he was with probation and parole for like 30 years. But by the time that I met Jerry through Jim, because Jerry and his wife, Jean, came to Louisville back in 2005, uh, uh, we talked about Bundy a little bit. I was aware that Jerry Thompson was involved in the Bundy case, but I had never read a book on the case. I had only remembered Bundy being on trial. I'd seen some of those trials live uh, back in, you know, uh, like 1980. And uh, so, you know, at that, I knew some things about the case, but I didn't know it very well. But I got to meet Jerry, and I thought that was great. And uh, but he brought Bundy's murder kit oh, to yeah. Louisville. Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. So I, I, he he gave it to Jim for the three or four days that they were here in Louisville. And um, so you know, one night I called Jim and I, I I got to see the stuff on the first night. But I called Jim like a couple nights later. And I said, Hey, do you mind if I bring that stuff to my house? He said, Sure. So I brought it over there and. Uh, I photographed it, and I thought, this is amazing. This is this, It's like somebody showing up with Jack the Ripper's yeah. uh, toolkit. Tool yeah. It was unbelievable. So anyway, okay, so I take my pictures. I take the, uh, the, the kit back to him, and then I go over and meet Jim and Jerry and Gene Thompson as they were leaving. And so Jerry gives me one of the glad bags from Ted Bundy's murder kit. Uh, Bundy always used those to... Uh, put the clothes of his victims in and they'd dump them off maybe a hundred miles down the road in a dumpster or something. Uh, but, uh, so he gave me one, he gave Jim one. I said, Jerry, could you write us each a letter of authentication? He said, sure. So I went inside the Brickenridge in here in Louisville and I got some of the uh, paper with, 
with the heading of the hotel, and uh, I thought that would be a kind of a nice uh, Christmas you know, gift, uh, yeah, uh, addition to it. Yes, and so anyway, and so he did it. Well, you know, it was great meeting Jerry, and I, it was really interesting. And I did write a. Uh, an article for it, the lead article for a, a, a newspaper, a paper that was a print newspaper here in Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky, and in about four or five other states called Snitch, and it was about crime uh, and the law, and they always had a lead article and a bunch of stuff in there, you know, besides that, and uh, just really neat stuff. Anyway, I wrote an article for it, but and I thought maybe, th I thought that's it with Bundy. I won't be doing anything else with Bundy. But this hunger in me kept at me, kept at me, kept at me. I thought, well, you know what I think? I think I'm going to write a book about Bundy. And he, and even when I talked to Jim Massey about it, he said, no, don't. He said, there's so many books out there. I said, yeah, but those books are from a long, long time ago. And I said, you know what? I just got this thing in me. I just know I should do it. So he said, okay. So anyway, I was going to do it. I did it. Halfway through the book, I was finding out brand new information that had never been in print before about some of the murders and they were validated by the detectives and even in parts by, by, by the record. And so all this stuff came to light and a lot of general new information about the case came to light. And so that, again, that was, I'm halfway through the book. So by then I thought, wow, and it was taking shape really well anyway, but I thought, well, that's, this is really interesting stuff. So I sold it to McFarlane and, um, it was published in 2009 and I thought, well, that will be it. And there was no reason to go back to it. And, and then I would write other things about crime and, and so General, General I, Custer. I, yeah. Yeah. Custer. And I looked for other stories and, but what was cool, I had been interviewing people about the Bundy case not knowing what to do with the information, getting really good information, and I would just put it in my files. And in 2015, there were a couple people who were ill, both of whom have passed away now. In fact, a number of the Bundy contacts have passed away. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, if I'm ever gonna write like a follow-up book or a companion volume, um, I need to do it now before anybody else passes away or isn't able to, to do interviews. So right. I wrote The Trail of Ted Bundy, Digging Up the Untold Stories, which was published in 2016. And that book has a tremendous amount of new information in it. Of people Bundy knew really well, some of his Mormon friends and other people, and it just has some great, great information. Well, I thought that's great. I'm so glad I did the companion volume, now I'm done. Uh -oh. But here starts pouring in more people. And along the year, and so after that, within about a year or so, I had published another book filled with astounding, validated, first-person accounts of people connected with the case, and that went into the Bundy Secrets. And then after that, I, I thought, well, I'm on a roll. More people are contacting me. I'll interview them. I'll see where it goes. And, you know, and uh, gathering other information and points of interest about the case. And so... After that, it was uh, Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries. And then, then, and this is so funny, when Ted Bundy's, Bundy's Murderous Mysteries came out, I, every time a book is published, I just relax for a while and I take it in and I will do some interview uh, from, you know, t uh, podcasts or radio shows or whatever. 
Well, I'll take it easy. I'm not writing anything. I'm just kind of basking in it. Well, this guy contacts me, a Facebook friend, and he said, Kevin, have you ever thought about writing an encyclopedia of the Ted Bundy murders? And I said, no, but I said, are you aware? I just, my publisher just released a, a new book on Bundy. I just finished one and, you know, we went through the editing process and it's published now. And he said, well, you know, I'm doing it myself, but I'm working a lot with Civil War things that, 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 that he's writing about. And I said, well, you know what? It does sound like a good idea. Let's put it on the shelf for now. So I waited a couple of days. It started to feel kind of good. I thought, well, I'll call the publisher. I'll see if they're interested. Maybe they won't be, and I can just put this thing away for even longer. They said, no, they thought it was a great idea. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And it was really a fun book to write because I got to look up the biographies of a lot of people that were involved in the case that I didn't know about. I got to talk to some of them. I especially enjoyed writing about the newspaper writers in Washington State and Utah and the various places who covered the Bundy case. And uh, it was interesting getting into their lives and seeing what, what, what you know, they were about more than just as writing about Bundy. And uh, so it gave me an opportunity to put something together that had never been done about Bundy, and it's a it's pretty in-depth encyclopedia. And then after that, I said, well, I'm gonna round this thing out with my last book, and I'm gonna call it The Enigma of Ted Bundy. And the, the subtitle is like The Questions and Controversies about America's something serial killer, whatever. I'm not looking at the book now, so I can't tell you the exact hey. subtitle, but, but it was covering stuff. So we covered a bunch of stuff in there of, of, of a lot of controversies and putting some things to rest that were missed that were not true. And I also added the taped interviews I did with several of the people. I've got Jerry Thompson in there, really illuminating stuff. I've got the criminologist Ron Holmes, and I've got um, uh, Don Patchen. And uh, all these guys were great. And, and, and so I was glad to turn the taped interviews into transcripts so people could read them but but I thought okay after 1400 pages I'm finally finished thank God I'm finished well that's what you thought <laughs> that's what I thought and here comes more testimonies and I'll tell you something I decided after these testimonies came in I said wait a minute maybe I'll I'll publish not a 250 page book or a 300 or more page book every couple of years Maybe I'll take the new information if it keeps coming in, and I'll take that new information, and I'll turn it into a yearly update. So I, I, I asked the publisher if they were interested. They, they really liked the idea. So I'm going to have a yearly update. Now, in fact, my seventh book, a smaller book, probably 150, 160 pages, something like that, will be coming out at some point. But it, I just turned the manuscript in. But, but. My, my thought about doing this was validated because of what happened between finishing the Enigma of Ted Bundy and now. And here's what, what, ha what happened. Yeah. Well, here's what happened. There are some things that you discover about a case that you never thought about, and you never knew it would, would be on your radar. And suddenly, through investigation and further, you know, going after things, boom. Something opens up, and that's what it did. Not only do I have a lot of validated people that Bundy tried to pick up that didn't go with him, and we know we know 
uh, that, that, that it was Ted by the things he said, by the things he did. He had a certain way of doing things. But here's something that I never thought I would ever find out. But in my book, The Enigma of Ted Bundy, I have the story of a woman named Susan Milner. And Susan Milner, around September of 1974, when Ted first got to Utah, Ted tried to pick her up. She was she was swinging on the she was sitting on a swing in like a um, an elementary school, just kind of sitting and cooling off. She had had a, a a slight argument with her husband, decided just to take a walk. She was only a few blocks from her apartment. She was only about. Oh, I would say about five blocks from where Bundy lived at 565 First Avenue in the what they what is called the Avenues in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, that was an interesting thing. I thought, isn't that interesting? At the time, I thought, isn't that interesting that Bundy was hunting so close to that location? Well, some of the people that I was able to interview for this book coming out um, also had had encounters with Bundy. And uh, it was in an area close to his rooming house, a little bit farther from where Milner was. But it also happened before the, as the one woman said, before the October murders. And um, he, so it turns out I was able to determine from previous uh, information I received and current information that Bundy was hunting that September right in his own proverbial backyard, right close. He, he, he was going west, away from his apartment towards downtown. He would go west or southwest. He was not going east, which was closer to the university. My, my feeling is at that time he didn't want to go closer to the university because September was a busy month for him. He didn't even get there until the 3rd. And then he had to, uh, you know, enroll in school. And then there was other things to do and get his apartment in shape. And then he went home to uh, uh, Seattle uh, in the middle of the month to uh, bring a truck back that he had purchased with. And his brother Glenn came with him with furniture. And then he, they went back to Utah and flew him back home. Money was extremely busy. But even though he was busy, he was so confident because of these other testimonies. And I put them all together. He was hunting in his own area. That's really and strange. That, yeah, that is strange because you'd think, you would think that somebody would want to go far from where they're living yeah. to start hunting yeah, like women. Israel Keys, you know, as far as yeah. as you can get. Yeah. So, you know, that's not what he did. So that was a brand new revelation. We wouldn't have known it unless I could have gotten hold of other people, which I did. Who, uh, who have been validated, and that it just proves he was hunting in that area, in a very small geographic uh, area and in a small window of time. Uh, during that September, and it could be the first week of October, but I don't think so, because by the first week of October, I think it's the second of October, he had already kidnapped and murdered uh, Nancy Wilcox. So th th these are odd happenings right there. So I never expected that to come to light, but it did. And so I discussed a lot of other things. And so, again, as, as these things roll in, uh, if they continue, if, I, uh, if, if, if the new information keeps coming to me uh, and it gets vetted, and I think it's really good, then these things will continue for a year. But I'm very happy with what I... Uh, I got a couple. Uh, Mark Boyer has a question for you. I know that yeah. I've got a couple. Go ahead, Mark. Sure. Um, sure. Being a part of this, sh uh, this particular show, I've, 
uh, I've heard an, many uh, accounts of serial killers. Uh, somebody that is, try, you know, uh, trying to rid themselves of something from their childhood, and they keep killing over and over, or they have a particular type that they're after, hookers yeah. or whatever. Well, um, what did Ted get out of his random choices? Well, w- one thing that we know, he didn't want to kill any women outside of his own race. He only wanted Cauca- Caucasian women. Um, he never picked anybody that was black or American Indian. I know of a, I was told by a detective, one young woman, an American Indian, while, he, while Buddy was hunting. She tried to make herself available to him. She didn't know he was a serial killer, and she wanted to be picked up by him. But he, he didn't want anything to do with her. Now, Bundy said there was, you know, some people, there, there's some myth out there. Some people think that what set Bundy off was, and the reason why he killed the way he did, because um, his girlfriend, Diane Edwards, was really a beautiful young woman with dark hair parted down the middle. Uh, you know, maybe that set him off to do that, but the answer to that would be no. And in fact, and I've always known that, but I've recently learned that even he told Bill Hagmeyer no. He said no. Giant had nothing to do with that. But well, um, wasn't his first kill a par- um, reportedly when he was fourteen? Well, yeah, it's very possible. I, I, I lean to that being a valid kill. I, I think he likely killed Anne Marie Burr. She was eight. And what he did was, he went through, if it was Monday, he went through an unlocked window that was raised a little bit because of a cable wire that, that was, that was you know, running through it. And they didn't, like, even though they couldn't lock it that way, they, there was a way to secure it, but, he, but nothing was done. He went through that window, uh, and he left some grass clippings on the carpet. He had to pass probably the parents' room, which was on the first floor. He went upstairs to Anne Marie's room, and they that I think the four the four year old sister was probably in the same room too, uh, but she, she could have been in another room. And he, there was other kids down in the basement, and he took her out through, through the front door. And when when Mrs. Burr and I had a chance to interview uh, her before she uh, about a year before she passed away for the book The Bunny Murders, and um, she and when she got up. And went out and talked. She had felt an unease anyway. She felt like something was wrong. Uh, she had been feeling like something was wrong outside of her house at night. They both did, Mr. and Mrs. Burr, uh, that, that they would hear things moving around. They didn't think it was animals. And, well, as if their house was being cased for some reason. But when she came out of her bedroom, she looked at the front door and it was standing wide open. Hmm. They ran all around the the only the only person missing was Anne Marie. Of course, she was never recovered. Do I think Bundy did it? Yes, I I, I, I think he did. And the only reason why I think he did is because although he almost always denied it, he alluded to it to doc to uh, not doctor but to Ronald M. Holmes, the uh, late criminologist from Louisville. Holmes had such a good relationship with Bundy that Bob Keppel, the Washington State detective, told me one day on the phone, he said, had Holmes and Bundy not had a falling out, uh, I believe uh, Bundy would have confessed all his crimes to Holmes. He said Holmes was his golden boy. And but they had a falling out, and of course that didn't happen. But um, he said to Holmes, he said, 
you know, in the third person thing that he was already familiar uh, with with Stephen Michelle back in like 1980 or so, uh, 1981, all that stuff. And he said, he said, um, the the first person that this this killer like this person killed was a girl as young as eight or nine. And he said, and the authorities were looking for someone who they were looking for this person who was also being like uh, questioned for murders who was suspected of committing murders at Lake Sammamish. Well, of course, that's him. Mm. That double abduction, that's Bundy. So Bundy alluded to it with a very person that, that, that Bob Keppel said uh, that, you know, he was Bundy's golden boy. He, he was one to make these confessions to. So do I think it's probably true? I think it is. And also, we know for a fact he killed a hitchhiker uh, he picked up in Tumwater, Washington, south of Seattle, and murdered her. And he slipped with Bob Keppel and said that he also murdered somebody in 72, but then he quickly denied it. And Keppel kept pressing on it because he felt like it was true and it likely was true. Probably what it was was it was the killing of a, of a girl or a pre, of a teenage girl or a preteen girl. And that was something he probably didn't want to talk about. Because in a third-person confession of Bundy, not the end of life confessions where he was really coming clean, but when he was speaking in third person, he was talking about a particular serial, serial killer, and he meant himself. Yeah. He said this person is responsible for at least um, a half a dozen murders of uh like young girls, which would be early teenage years or maybe even preteens. Now, we know he killed two 12-year-olds of, of Pocatello, Idaho, and his last victim, Kim Leach, was 12. Uh, he said that Culver looked a little bit older, like maybe she could have been 15. I mean, if that, as if that would make that much difference, but he thought she was a little bit older. But he, you know, you, you, you couldn't look at Kim Leach and not think she, that she's a day over 12. So, you know, so, and you know, when he was caught in Florida, he had these like uh, high school cheerleader magazines. So, you know, he had this thing where he was, he was, I think he was on college women first, but when that came uh, to be difficult, if he wasn't finding any, uh, he would go to somebody younger. Or if the opportunity arose, mm. he would capture somebody very young. In fact, yeah, I get the feeling there's a lot of those crimes of opportunity with him. It's like yeah. there's this undercurrent compulsion running 24-7. And how close it yeah. gets to the surface depends on what triggers happen. Well, exactly. Now, Bundy himself admitted that there were times when, of course, when he called it the entity and that real desire to murder rose up and he, and he got into an altered state. He said, and he knew he was going to kill under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. But there were, but, but, but just what you're talking about, uh, Burl, he, there, he said there were crimes of opportunity that came along and even though he didn't have the desire to kill because the opportunity was there right he he went for it and probably what happened was once a girl say it was a hitchhiker once she got in his car and he saw the possibilities of being able to murder her then that that alter state would would begin to take over anyway so but yeah so it's yeah he he was certainly was a planner of murder but he was also an opportunist what did what did he get out personally from the killings. Oh, it was. Uh, he just loved it. He, he just loved it. He told Bill Hagmar this. He said, I, "I don't understand why people don't understand 
I just enjoyed killing people. He did it so he could possess them. Now, here's what, here, here's the kind of thinking that goes in with, so, and it's more than just Bundy. Some of these killers are like this, but this was definitely the way it was with Bundy. He would, uh, for example, he would, his basic MO was strangling them from behind while he had sexual intercourse with them. And he would use various things to do it. He would have a, an electrical cord he carried with his kit. Sometimes he would use a, a blue sock or, or, a, or a stocking. But the thing of it is, he strangled them from behind. But, but he described to Bill Hagmeyer, he said he would do things like, he said he used to like to see the life go out of their eyes and he liked to see their last breath. And I think he also said uh, that, you know, like when he would, you know, he, he would kill them and turn them over, he would often feel that last breath. So he was very involved in that. And, and, and at moments like that, he would say, they're mine. It's like they're mine forever. And that's how these people think. And Ed Kemper thought that way. And a lot of serial killers who are sexual serial killers think that way. So it's a personal thing. And uh, they, they, they just love it. It's very mystical for them. That's why the places, if you go to the place, if he returned to the places where he killed or where he dumped the bodies, if they were different, and, very, and oftentimes they, they were different, each place would become a mystical place to him. It would become like something very sacred special. ground. Yes, sacred ground. Interesting. That's <clears throat> that's disturbing. You, yeah, duh. It is. Yeah. It is. Various president was victims found it very disturbing. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, very disturbing. Well, and Bobby, once he owned like them, that. it's kind of like Robert Lee Yates. Once he'd killed them and he'd owned them and taken complete control, he would have sex with them after they were dead as, like, further proof. You know? Yeah, and listen, Yates to this day enjoys thinking about those things and masturbating to those things. To this day, according to the, according to what his girlfriend told me, or his fiance, yeah, he that's still an, enjoys that. That's he another can't thing. take that away from them. Yeah. That's another Sorry, thing that ahead. really blows me away is that there are women that seek out these individuals. Yes. Well, you know, I don't understand that at all. No, they have real problems. They have... Well, just think about that. Who would do that? I mean, I, I, you know, when I was when I was writing the book, The Bloody Martyrs, people were saying to me, we're going to try to contact um, Carol Boone. I said, why on earth would I want to contact her? She was so clueless until the end. All the information I need from her. But I don't want to talk to people that are completely clueless. But, but yeah, these women who go after these guys, it's just, it's unbelievable. And yet, they all have these weirdos showing up. I mean, what, what, uh, Richard Ramirez got married, just like yeah. Bundy did in prison. Can you imagine that? What kind of woman? Oh boy, I, I'll tell you how they think. I saw an interview on TV with this woman. This guy had murdered his wife and his children and put their dead bodies in his storage locker. And he moves uh -huh. from Washington to, I think, Idaho. Yeah. And get some another girlfriend there. And this bill keeps coming in the mail every month for that storage locker. Well, mm -hmm. he never tells her what's in it. And she gets tired of paying it. She goes, what the hell? I'll just stop paying it and see what happens. Well, of course. Well, they'll find it. So they, uh, you know, it goes up for auction. Someone bids on it. They open it up. And there's a corpse of his uh, 
dead wife and his dead yeah. kids. And yeah. so the the gator viewer asked her, said, if you would have known what was in that locker, what would you have done? He said, well, I would have kept paying the bill. Why would you keep paying the bill? He murdered his wife. He murdered his kids. Oh, yeah. Well, he yeah. was drinking then. He wouldn't do that yeah. to me. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, talk oh, about yeah. rationalizing it away. It's amazing. Well, listen, these women on Facebook sometimes, because they know I write about Bundy, they talk about their attraction to him and how. You know how, and I've seen their pictures, and I said, you know, uh, they they think that if Bundy were uh, alive today, they could woo him over, and everything would be hunky dory. Oh yeah, sure. I said, listen, I, I said, listen, you're the type that he'd love to cut your head off, take it home to his apartment, and have sex with it. That's the way it is. Yeah, that's all you would be to him. And uh, I, I don't know what's wrong with people like this. They're they're, they're kind of way out there. It's just real strange. So yeah, I noticed. Yeah, I, <laughs> One of, uh, did either of you see the movie Mystic River by Clint Eastwood? Oh, rings a bell. Tim Robbins oh. and uh, oh, you mean uh, oh, M- Mystic River? Yes, yes, and, and uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, yes, a long time ago, and he also made one play Misty for me. Well, well which was right, but they, and, uh, and, and, and that was where the lady yes, was uh, couldn't, couldn't get over it. Yeah, I had yeah. one of those. So in Mystic oh, River. The basic premise of the plot is a couple's daughter is murdered. And during the the film, as it progresses, they think Uh it's Tim Robbins, the wife's brother, who had killed the daughter. And the husband acts on it and kills him. But after 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 he is killed, it comes Mm -hmm. out that it was too local boys and not Tim Robbins. Boy. And the, in the creepiest, most disturbing scene I've ever seen in a film, the wife comes to the husband after this revelation and she puts her arms around him and says, you are exactly the husband I want. Someone that will do whatever is necessary to take care of me. And he said, what is it I don't know about my wife? Yes. <laughs> no, no, because it was so creepy because she now knows yes. he oh, killed yeah. her brother, but she is saying that it's okay oh, my. because you were protecting my family. Oh, my Lord. And if you go back to that film at the end and watch that scene yeah. again, it I is killing. That's the creepiest uh, damn thing I've heard in a long time. Well, yeah. I'll go to the end of the movie, and you'll see that yeah. point when, the, yeah, you know, creepy. the people are coming over to the house for the funeral. Yeah, you know, after the After the graveside service. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure he slept with one eye open. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, he no. knows he's safe. He I mean, is, no. He is completely secure because oh, yeah. she is validating him. Yeah. She is saying, "You are my man, and there yeah. is nothing to fear." Yeah. Because yeah. you are oh, exactly what I want from my husband. Take care yeah, of yeah. us. <laughs> Very creepy. Yeah. Real, what are you gonna say, girl? <laughs> yeah. This is too weird for me. <laughs> right. Now I, the, got, the, I got a question for the you. The whole cast was great in that movie. Yeah. Good ensemble there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just reminded me of that woman when I was 18 years old that picked me up at a basketball game and I took her back to my place. Had a little bunk beds there. Mm-hmm. We're on the top bunk. Mm-hmm. We're making out. She looks me right in the eye and she says, 
hurt me. A real man would know how to hurt me. <laughs> and I looked at oh. her and I said, you don't know how to access, said you don't know how to accessorize. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that really hurt her. What, what, what did I do on this one? <laughs> How did I, I get this thing? I've known some strange, strange people, especially when you do true crimes. So the question I ask you is, it must have been some of these people who contacted you, they were full of crap. Yeah. They couldn't they be are, and Well, yeah, now I, I get contacted by so many. Some people are sincere, but then when I find out they're in the... Um, Somebody wasn't in their area at the time. They go, oh, okay, I, you know, I understand. Or, or, or one said, are you sure he didn't come through such and such city? I said, no, he came through a different way, so he, he couldn't have been. And most people are saying, okay, well, I wasn't sure. I had this experience. It was a guy that looked like Bundy. Some people say, well, now, there was a guy with a Volkswagen. This was even before Bundy had purchased his Volkswagen in 1973. He did ball lists and things like that, but but uh, but he wasn't in that area. So you do have that. Then you have some people that are just lying, and you know it. And uh, so they know so, it. You know, they know it. And But then you get these other people, and sometimes, if I'm fortunate, uh, somebody that I've already worked with that I know is a valid person will sometimes give me the name of somebody else. And um, so, you know, that, I mean, that's always good. And um, usually when that happens, and I can verify even that with some other people, but it starts to come together. And there are some things that you'll hear about, and I know there's another researcher out there, and he, and he will say this, you can tell by what the woman said that Bundy said it's him. And that is true. Bundy had a certain way of doing things. He would say things like, uh, excuse me, miss, or uh, ma'am, excuse me, but, I, you know, and they, oh, she would say, I can't help. Oh, that's okay. And he'd be very nice. And he would have certain catchphrases he would use. And, of course, um, when you start hearing that from somebody and then you've got a couple people saying the same thing out of the same area or in this case that they were there together <clears throat> talking to Monday and everything. So you know you've got some really, really good things. So here's how I classify it. I classify some as valid, 100%, you know it's Bundy. Then I have another classification. It was likely Bundy, but we can't prove it. Then there's another classification that says, well, it could be Bundy, but it could be somebody else, too. But because there might be an earmark or two, here's a story you judge for yourself. And then, no, it's not Bundy at all. So, yeah, so you have to go through this and kind of weed stuff out. But, but once you get to know these people and you think they're valid and you get a little bit more into their life, you can see that they live in the area. Or, or they have contacts in the area uh, from from where this happened, and there's people there that know them. And so you know, there's a lot of ways to verify people. But sometimes you know you can say, absolutely say yes. Other times say it's very likely. But then there's going to be some times I don't know. But because this person lived in the area at the time, I'm going to give this to you. A, a lady contacted me once, and I have this in the upcoming book. She said, "Listen, I had a guy." pull up in a Volkswagen. I was in Seattle. It was in the first week of June of 1975. And um, she said, he tried to get me to, it was very nice, he was very polite. He said he tried to get me to get, get into his car. He offered me a ride, I was walking. I said no, he was a little insistent. But then after I 
you know, just told him I'm just not going to do it. He drove off. He never tried to do anything. She said, do you know if Bundy was there that week? I said, well, I can go back to my uh, book, see if I can locate anything in the record that I might have put in my book, The Bundy Murders. And um, I said, but I'm thinking at the same time, it probably wasn't because I know how busy Bundy was in Utah and Colorado doing things and you know but I, I can't can't guarantee it well sure enough Bundy came home that first week of June um, so she, she she said it was in the first week of June and Bundy got back on by maybe the 6th of June or the 5th I, I, I'm not I, I think the 6th so so it was right around there and he was home for a week so maybe this lady you know it's right in there so that I makes said, well, sense that yeah, makes sense because, so. like with Robert yeah. Lee Yates, uh, yeah. he would travel to the other side of the state for his uh, National Guard meetings, mm-hmm. and he would get over there. you got to figure underneath the surface at all times, this uh-huh. this thing is running. You know, the script oh, is yeah. running. And anything that's going to trigger is going to trigger it. And right. without fail, he'd go out as National Guard, and he'd kill somebody. Not uh-huh. because he had the overwhelming, but it was just like, Arg, I haven't killed anybody in a week. You know, it's, yeah, you know, sure. I need a McDonald's yeah, burger. And, oh yeah. And sometimes, when it was really strong, you know, mm-hmm. he'd go out hunting. But other times, it was just like you say, a crime of opportunity. You know, yeah. oh, there's one. Guy, yeah. If I got time to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's tragic, well, really tragic. Well, listen to this. You know how I told you that uh, I did my re- well, I did my research for the Bundy murders, two thousand and two thousand seven, two thousand eight. It really started in two thousand six, but I really got down to ordering case files so all of two thousand seven, almost all of two thousand eight, and. Um, and, and then the book was published in 2009. I told you I didn't do it again until a number of years later, published in 2016. Well, in the intervening years, I, I had a woman contact me, and she said, I think I had a run-in with Bundy. I'm not sure, but I, I think I did, because after he was arrested, I said, boy, that looks like the guy. And she described his car. It was a beige Volkswagen. And she said to me, now, um, keep in mind, this was not... I, I didn't think I was going to be really, you know, writing again because I published the second book. And, but but she, she, I thought, well, I'll keep the information. And then she said to me, she said, look, I think it was in, and she named it, uh, 1973 or 1975. I can't remember now. Because at some time later than that, when I thought I wasn't going to write the book, I just dumped the information. Or I deleted it back so then I can't remember. Because it was an electronic file. But... Um, she, she she described him to a T. Now, here's something I had forgotten about. Bundy, I always thought Bundy admitted, I, I had forgotten from the Bundy murders that Bundy admitted to killing two people in Oregon. And for some reason, I was just thinking one. So when she either said 73 or 75, but I think it was 73, when she said that, I said, well, it couldn't be Bundy because... Uh, he did his thing at, at OSU in 1974, and he killed, kidnapped Kenny Parks and murdered her. So she said, oh, okay. And then I, I wish I could have kept enough. If I'd have known, if I'd have remembered there was two, then I would have said, yeah, it could very well have been him. So I, I told myself later when I discovered this, that there was actually two then, I thought, I don't know how I lost her information, but I, I'm never going to lose this information again. And from that moment on, I haven't. 
And uh, but but here, I kind of convinced her it wasn't, and yet it likely wasn't. Here's what she said: She said he was going very slowly on the OSU campus in Corvallis and moving slowly. And I'm busy talking, and I stepped out into the street, and he nearly ran into me. And she told me what he said. She said he was very polite. But again, he was asking her to get in the car. He'd be happy to give her a ride somewhere. And they stood there and talked a moment. And here's what was interesting. They talked for like a minute or so, long enough for her to get a really good look at him and, and, and to uh, hear what his voice sounded like. And she described his car very well. And so uh, it was likely Bundy. In fact, I would almost say that that's probably an Adam Bundy, but because of how she said, she was so convinced it was him. And she just wanted to tell me the story. So I kind of unconvinced her, which was a shame. And if she ever contacts me again, I'll say that probably was Buddy. But in any event, he was he was hunting there again. So Buddy was a creature of habit. So you look at uh, Corvallis and he kidnaps Kathy Parks on May 6th of 1974. Um, you think, oh, he's not going to go back there again. But he did. He also kidnapped, and I'll be talking about this in the next book, but he also you know, kid, kidnapped... Um, um, Donna Manson from uh, from the uh, Central Washington, uh, not Central Washington, but uh, the Evergreen State College mm-hmm. in Olympia, and uh, and I, I don't need to talk about that anymore because I've written about that a lot. But he tried to abduct another woman on the campus on a different date. I think like oh maybe a number of months either before or after. And uh, so I'll be writing about that. So he was a creature of habit. He would often go back to the same locations, not just where he would get victims from before, but he would often, when he'd go out of state, going to Colorado, or you, he would stop for gas at the same locations. He was kind of like that creature of habit. Right. So anyway, just some interesting stuff. But you're right, they're always on. People you, like this are always on. Anyway, go ahead. Do you, uh, do you think he picked Florida uh, specifically because it had the death penalty? There's a possibility of that. Uh, because Emmanuel Tenet said he's got, and this is a guy that would work for the defense, and, you know, he just really analyzed Bundy very well. He said Bundy um, was almost like of two minds on that. He's like, you know, if, if he asked somebody once, this is what I've heard. Who who has the death penalty that, that I mean they're actually using it? And somebody mentioned Florida, maybe Texas or whatever. And um, so th- there's a possibility that he did go there for that reason, because Bundy wasn't a stupid man. He was he, he had high intellect, and he, he surely he would have known that. And Florida was not like any other state. Once they nabbed him, they were not. he was not going to escape from there. In fact, I'll tell you something that a detective told me to turn off the tape. When I was in, please turn off the tape. I'll just tell you a story. I said, okay, great. I turned off the tape. I got a call from somebody, and I'm not going to tell you who or what department this was, but I got a call, and this person said, if Bundy gets off for any reason, technicalities or whatever, we're going to give you a call and tell you that we found a body along the road and we think it's Bundy. And then you'll take it from there. He said, okay. And that's if he would have gotten out. So Florida had no intention of letting him live or get away. They weren't going to be like some some, some other state. So it, it could be that maybe that. And you got to ask yourself this. Why did he dawdle 
getting out of Florida. Yeah, he just he waited for him. <laughs> yeah, he's practically waiting to get caught. He's in he's in Pensacola behind the building with his lights off when Officer David Lee spots him and and starts you know, you know giving chase. So you got to ask yourself: Is there something to it? It could very well be. Hey, uh, Bundy was executed at the end of January, eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Eighty nine. What what do you think keeps him relevant? Thirty uh, years question. later. I think what keeps him as a top tier of uh, serial killers, even though some have killed more, Bundy is very different. He's um, not just a diabolical killer, but he is on the outside. He's a college graduate, a former law student, political campaigner, someone that had a lot going in his life if he only would have just gone that way. And that's in the preface of the Bundy murders that there's a type of disconnect that goes on in people. On the one hand, they see the outward Bundy, nice, affable, uh, you know, friendly, willing to help people. Uh, Girls liked him, women found him attractive. And then if you look at what he really was that would come out only with his victims, you've got one of the most diabolical humans who ever walked the earth. And so that creates a disconnect in a lot of people's minds. When they see some of these other killers... They look like they're killers. They look like they're killers. They're walking down the street. You know, we want to go to the other side. They look like they're killers, not Bundy. And that's one of the things that, yeah, that that, that causes people to really want to know more about it. I had Ann Rule, plus her heart, Bobby Lunch in New York one year, Mm -hmm. and we were talking Uh about Bundy. Uh I said, Ann, you knew this guy. You know, she told Mm -hmm. me that she took him to a dance. He thought she needed to kind of unwind a bit, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so she takes him to this dance, and there was this girl with dark hair, part of the middle, really very attractive. She's going, mm-hmm. Ted, Ted, ask her to dance. Ted, oh, ask her to yeah. dance. Maybe you could go yeah. out with her, you know? Yeah, alone. But, yeah, but I mean, she didn't know, you know, the. No. Because she didn't know he was a serial killer. And, no. And he, he wouldn't do it. She said, All he did is he got no. so drunk. He wouldn't yeah. dance with her. He just went into this funk, got so drunk, she had to take him home and dress him and put him to bed. And then, yeah. of course, later when it turned out the stranger beside me, you know, he was, yeah. he was, uh, and she talks about him with such loving memories, you know. Oh, yeah. Ted this, yeah. Ted that. I said, and yeah. you got to tell me straight mm-hmm. out. Yeah, yeah. Which was the Ted Bundy? Who was Ted Bundy? Was he that nice guy that was your good friend that worked at the crisis clinic or whatever the hell it was? Said, or uh-huh. was he the horrible monster chopping people's heads off and having sex with their eye sockets? You know? Yeah. Which was it? Yeah, right. He said, the, yeah. the, the horrible person who chopped their heads off and had sex with yeah. their eyes. That was Ted right. Bundy. Yeah. Right. Um... I've got a, I, I, there, there's a woman that lives in uh, Utah. Her name is Francine uh, Bardol. And she was friends with Leslie Knudsen. Mm. And they lived on the same block. And uh, during the summer of 75, Bundy was staying with Leslie because they had been dating. And Leslie uh, uh, Knudsen, you know, would use Francine as a babysitter sometimes. And uh, so she would keep her son Josh and then, uh, then Francine's son, Larry, would go out. And because Larry and Josh were always together, Bundy would take them places, right? Mm-hmm. Take them to the pool and take them to the drive-in. And one night when he took Larry, I've, inter- both, I've, I've, I've interviewed both Francine and Larry. They're really nice people. And um, 
And so Bunny took him to a drive-in um, one, one night, and I think he took him to this particular drive-in on a couple of occasions. But on this one night, Bunny said, stay here, I want to go to the uh, like restroom or whatever. And he was a long time getting back. So the boys got out of the car, and they went and they found him, and he was standing in front of the, girl, the women's restroom watching the women come and go. Now, that speaks to me that something was starting to rise. Right, the devil was rising, all right. It was rising. And he was and shopping. So that, and that's right. And so he knew he couldn't do anything with the boys, so what, what, what that tells me is he probably, once the movie was over and he took the boys home, he, he went back out because... Uh, Francine told me that Leslie had gotten so frustrated frustrated with him because he's such a nocturnal creature that he would um, be asleep, you know, half the day or all day, and then he would go out at night. And she said so often she would make Leslie would call Francine and say, "Could you, could could Josh come over and like spend the night with Larry, or could you keep him till midnight or whatever?" Ted, uh, I want to go out, and then she'd call later and cancel. She said Ted can't do it. So you know he he was out a lot, and yeah. but I, I, but but having having that elixir of watching those women and it, that, that that's like a replay of Lake Sammamish yeah. because he was yeah hunting at the restroom and that's how he got Denise Naslin that day on July fourteenth of seventy four at Lake Sammamish so you know that was building in him so yeah these are just really interesting stories and and Josh said. That and I'm sure, sorry. I said. I mean, Larry said that when they would go to the pool, Ted would play this thing called shark, and he would go under the water and be swimming under the water, and he'd grab either Larry's j- uh, leg or or Josh's leg, and he would like bite, not, not drawing blood, but he would bite. And Larry said, "We don't like this this game. We, we don't want to play this game anymore." But uh, knowing he what did. he was, I guess it, I guess it was apropos, as they say. Now, my, my brother was working in the, uh, the only time in his life he worked in the prosecutor's office, uh-huh. uh, Fed prosecutor's office in Seattle. And uh-huh. uh, Bundy's girlfriend came to them yeah. and mentioned this thing that she thought it was him. Oh, And okay. the bite marks. She said, the bites. Uh-huh. He bites my ass. Uh-huh. And yeah. that was something that had, hadn't been... You know, put in the paper. You know, yeah. And but she had a feeling it was the car, the guy. You know, and my brother told me this. And this girl comes mm-hmm. in and I think it's so and so because he bites mm-hmm. my ass just like that. Well, you know what? They could have gotten that. Uh, they uh, they have to this day. They have the uh, mold that was made of Bundy's teeth uh, in the. Uh, uh, the state archives of Florida. I should say the Florida State Archives. So you can, you know, Bundy had really bad teeth, and they were jagged and going in different directions. Some of they just weren't 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 good teeth. He he desperately needed braces, but never got them. The bottom line is they were easy to match. But but uh, Ken Katsaris, I, I mean, Ken Katsaris, the sheriff in Florida, said. We weren't telling Bundy we were going to take him and have a mold made of his teeth. He said if he had gotten wind of what we were going to do, he had slammed his teeth up against something. And all you have to do is make one ship on a tooth, and the whole thing's off. And uh, so, you know, they didn't tell him. But, yeah, it was just interesting. You know, that was an animalistic thing. I don't think he planned to do that. It just kind of came deep from within. And he made that bite. In fact, he made it twice. It's like a, a double. It's like an overlapping bite, tw- two bites. 
but they were able to match it. And the people, the uh, the the forensic people who were there, the the people, the evidence people, they were smart, and they laid a uh, a ruler, a small ruler there, uh, also, as as they photographed it. And um, I even published a book of um, Bundy's um, corpse, close up of his face, in Enigma. Uh, it's a p- part of a number of photographs that the metal that the medical examiner took that day uh, after he was executed. But uh, yeah, he, uh, Bill Hagmar told me one day on the phone. He said that Bundy said to him, "What am I going to say to God?" And I thought, indeed, said, "What are you going to say?" Yeah, as <laughs> if you're going to get an audience. <laughs> oh my. Uncensored. I am Burl Bear, the man next to me, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. Hello. Hello. Part two of Kevin Sullivan's explanation of how Ted Bundy destroyed his life. Back. Kevin, 
Hey, Burl. How you doing? Fine. I was just telling people you were minding your own business, writing books about <laughs> General Custer and saying, this is getting me nowhere. I need to find a serial killer and find one fast. Theodore came along. <laughs> yeah, now, is that kind of how it happened? Because Mark Boyer printed out for me a, a timeline of Ted Bundy, and I figured, where did Kevin Sullivan get this epiphany of, my God, I, this is like playing Sim City. I could build a whole career based on this guy. <laughs> That's true. It looks like it happened to. <laughs> yeah, you didn't plan that. I mean, when that first book came out. I didn't plan it. Didn't plan it. Didn't know it was going to go beyond one book. No, didn't no. Didn't know I was going to write the one book until uh, that, those other things happened and oh, okay. I decided to do it. Let's yeah. let's go back before McFarland even got your proposal, okay? Okay. This is a great similarity great. you and I have is that both of us had our first books from McFarland. Yes. Which is yes. Cool. A great publishing company. Some very interesting books. And I think they published Published two, three hundred books a year, and they've got some really no oh, good stuff. Really, good, really yeah, good they got stuff. a lot of really good stuff there. So anyway, anyway, so if, we, you want, uh, if, if, if you want me to go into it, um, I want you to know how how it was. You were sitting there minding your own business. You went, damn, you know, Lord yeah. forgive me. I think if I got on this Bundy wagon, <laughs> I could ride it <laughs> into eternity. <laughs> yeah, well, he hadn't corrected me on it, so I guess I'm okay. Yeah, but in any but in any event, yeah, yeah, it, it all happened because. I had a chance to meet Jerry Thompson, and he was a friend of Jim Matthews, uh, who was my friend here in Louisville. He's passed on now, but he was with probation and parole for like 30 years. But by the time that I met Jerry through Jim, because Jerry and his wife, Jean, came to Louisville back in 2005, uh, uh, we talked about Bundy a little bit. I was aware that Jerry Thompson was involved in the Bundy case, but I had never read a book on the case. I had only remembered Bundy being on trial. I'd seen some of those trials live uh, back in, you know, uh, like 1980. And uh, so, you know, I, I knew some things about the case, but I didn't know it very well. But I got to meet Jerry, and I thought that was great. And uh, But he brought Bundy's murder kit. Oh, yeah. Louisville. Yeah, yeah, amazing stuff. So I, I, he, he gave it to Jim for the three or four days that they were here in Louisville. And um, so, you know, one night I called Jim, and I, I, I got to see the stuff on the first night, but I called Jim like a couple nights later. I said, hey, do you mind if I bring that stuff to my house? He said, sure. So I brought it over there, and I, I photographed it, and I thought, this is amazing. This is this, It's like somebody showing up with Jack the Ripper's yeah. uh, toolkit. Tool yeah. It was unbelievable. So anyway, okay, so I take my pictures. I take the, uh, the, the kit back to him, and then I go over and meet Jim and Jerry and Gene Thompson as they were leaving. And so Jerry gives me one of the glad bags from Ted Bundy's murder kit. Uh, Bundy always used those to... Uh, put the clothes of his victims in and they'd dump them off maybe 100 miles down the road in a dumpster or something. Uh, but, uh, so he gave me one, he gave Jim one, I said, Jerry, could you write us each a letter of authentication? He said, sure. So I went inside the Breckenridge Inn here in Louisville and I got some of the uh, paper with with the heading of the hotel and uh, I thought that would be a, kind of a nice uh, Christmas you know, gift, uh, yeah. addition to it, yes. And so anyway, and so he did it. Well, you know, it was great meeting Jerry, and I, it, it was really interesting. And I did write a, 
an article for it, the, the lead article for a, a, a newspaper, a, a paper that was a print newspaper here in Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky, and in about four or five other states called Snitch, and it was about crime uh, and the law, and they always had a lead article and a bunch of stuff in there, you know, besides that, and uh, just really neat stuff. Anyway, I wrote an article for it, but and I thought maybe, that, I thought that's it with Bundy. I won't be doing anything else with Bundy. But this hunger in me kept at me, kept at me, kept at me. I thought, well, you know what I think? I think I'm going to write a book about Bundy. And he, and even when I talked to Jim Massey about it, he said, no, don't. He said, there's so many books out there. I said, yeah, but those books are from a long, long time ago. And I said, you know what? I just got this thing in me. I just know I should do it. So he said, okay. So anyway, I was going to do it. I did it. Halfway through the book, I was finding out brand new information that had never been in print before about some of the murders and they were validated by the detectives and even in parts by, by, by the record. And so all this stuff came to light and a lot of general new information about the case came to light. And so that, again, that was, I'm halfway through the book. So by then I thought, wow, and it was taking shape really well anyway, but I thought, well, that's, this is really interesting stuff. So I sold it to McFarlane and, um, it was published in 2009 and I thought, well, that will be it. And there was no reason to go back to it. And then I would write other things about crime and, and General General Custer. Yeah. Yeah. Custer. And I looked for other stories and, but what was cool, I had been interviewing people about the Bundy case not knowing what to do with the information, getting really good information, and I would just put it in my files. And in 2015, there were a couple people who were ill, both of whom have passed away now. In fact, a number of the Bundy contacts have passed away. Um, And uh, I thought, you know, if I'm ever gonna write like a follow-up book or a companion volume, um, I need to do it now before anybody else passes away or isn't able to to do interviews. So I wrote The Trail of Ted Bundy, Digging Up the Untold Stories, which was published in 2016. And that book has a tremendous amount of new information in it. Of people Bundy knew really well, some of his Mormon friends and other people, and it just has some great, great information. Well, I thought that's great. I'm so glad I did the companion volume, now I'm done. But here starts pouring in more people and along the year, and so after that, within about a year or so, I had published another book filled with astounding, validated, first-person accounts of people connected with the case, and that went into the Bundy secrets. And then after that, I, I thought, well, I'm on a roll. More people are contacting me. I'll interview them. I'll see where it goes. And, you know, and uh, gathering other information and points of interest about the case. And so... After that, it was uh, Ted Bundy's Murderous Mysteries. And then, then, and this is so funny, when Ted Bundy's, Bundy's Murderous Mysteries came out, I, every time a book is published, I just relax for a while and I take it in and I will do some interview uh, from, you know, t- uh, podcasts or radio shows or whatever. But I'll take it easy. I'm not writing anything. I'm just kind of basking in it. Well, this guy contacts me, a Facebook friend, and he said, Kevin, have you ever thought about writing an encyclopedia of the Ted Bundy murders? And I said, no, but I said, are you aware I just 
my publisher just released a, a new book on Bundy. I just finished one, and you know, we went through the editing process, and it's published now. And he said, "Well, you know, I'm doing it myself, but I'm working a lot with Civil War things that that that, that he's writing about." And I said, "Well, you know what? It does sound like a good idea. Let's put it on the shelf for now." So I waited a couple of days. It started to feel kind of good. I thought, "Well." I'll call the publisher. I'll see if they're interested. Maybe they won't be, and I can just put this thing away for even longer. They said no. They, they thought it was a great idea. So <laughs> I, I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And it was really a fun book to write because I got to look up the biographies of a lot of people that were involved in the case that I didn't know about. I got to talk to some of them. I, I especially enjoyed writing about the newspaper writers in Washington State and Utah and the various places who covered the Bundy case. And uh, it was interesting getting into their lives and seeing what, what, what you know, they were about more than just as writing about Bundy. And uh, so it gave me an opportunity to put something together that had never been done about Bundy, and it's a it's pretty in-depth encyclopedia. And then after that, I said, well, I'm going to round this thing out with my last book, and I'm going to call it The Enigma of Ted Bundy. And the subtitle is like the questions and controversies about America's something serial killer, whatever. I'm not looking at the book now, so I can't tell you the exact hey. subtitle. But but it was covering stuff, so we covered a bunch of stuff in there, of, of of a lot of controversies and putting some things to rest that were missed that were not true. And I also added the taped interviews I did with several of the people. I've got Jerry Thompson in there, really illuminating stuff. I've got the criminologist Ron Holmes and I've got um, uh, Don Patchen and uh, all these guys were great and, and, and so I was glad to turn the taped interviews into transcripts so people could read them but but I thought okay after 1400 pages I'm finally finished thank God I'm finished well that's what you thought <laughs> that's what I thought and here comes more testimonies and I'll tell you something I decided after these testimonies came in I said wait a minute Maybe I'll, I'll publish not a 250-page book or a 300-or-more-page book every couple of years. Maybe I'll take the new information, if it keeps coming in, and I'll take that new information, and I'll turn it into a yearly update. So I, I, I asked the publisher if they were interested. They, they really liked the idea. So I'm going to have a yearly update. Now, in fact, my seventh book, a smaller book, probably 150, 160 pages, something like that, will be coming out at some point. But it, I just turned the manuscript in. But, but my, my thought about doing this was validated because of what happened between finishing the Enigma of Ted Bundy and now. And here's what, what, ha what happened, yeah. Well, here's what happened. There are some things that you discover about a case that you never thought about and you never knew it would, would be on your radar. And suddenly, through investigation and further, you know, going after things, boom, something opens up and that's what it did. Not only do I have a lot of validated people that Bundy tried to pick up that didn't go with him, and we know we know that, uh, that, that it was Ted by the things he said, by the things he did. He had a certain way of doing things. But here's something that I never thought I would ever find out. But in my book, The Enigma of Ted Bundy, I have the story of a woman named Susan Milner. And Susan Milner 
around September of 1974, when Ted first got to Utah, Ted tried to pick her up. She was she was swinging on the she was sitting on a swing in like a um, an elementary school, just kind of sitting and cooling off. She had had a, a a slight argument with her husband, decided just to take a walk. She was only a few blocks from her apartment. She was only about. Oh, I would say about five blocks from where Bundy lived at 565 First Avenue in the what they what is called the Avenues in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, that was an interesting thing. I thought, isn't that interesting? At the time, I thought, isn't that interesting that Bundy was hunting so close to that location? Well, some of the people that I was able to interview for this book coming out um, also had had encounters with Bundy. And uh, it was in an area close to his rooming house, a little bit farther from where Milner was. But it also happened before the, as the one woman said, before the October murders. And um, so it turns out I was able to determine from previous uh, information I'd received and current information that Bundy was hunting that September right in his own proverbial backyard, right close. He was, he, he was going west, away from his apartment towards downtown. He would go west or southwest. He was not going east, which was closer to the university. My, my feeling is at that time he didn't want to go closer to the university because September was a busy month for him. He didn't even get there until the 3rd. And then he had to, uh, you know, enroll in school, and then there was other things to do and get his apartment in shape, and then he went home to uh, uh, Seattle uh, in the middle of the month to uh, bring a truck back that he had purchased, with, and his brother Glenn came with him with furniture, and then he, they went back to Utah and flew him back home. Money was extremely busy. But even though he was busy, he was so confident because of these other testimonies, and I put them all together, he was hunting in his own area. That's really and strange. That, yeah, that is strange because you'd think, you would think that somebody would want to go far from where they're living yeah. to start hunting Yeah, like women. Israel Keys, you know, as far as way yeah. as you could get. Yeah, so, you know, that's not what he did. So that was a brand new revelation. We wouldn't have known it unless I could have gotten hold of other people, which I did, who, who have been validated and that it just proves he was hunting in that area in a very small geographic uh, area and in a small window of time uh, during that September and it could be the first week of October but I don't think so because by the first week of October I think it's the second of October he had already kidnapped and murdered uh, Nancy Wilcox so these are odd happenings right there so I never expected that to come to light but it did and so I discussed a lot of other things and so again as, as these things roll in uh, if they continue, if, I, uh, if, if, if the new information keeps coming to me uh, and it gets vetted, and I think it's really good, then these things will continue for a year. But I'm very happy with what I. Uh, I got a couple. Uh, Mark Boyer has a question for you. I know that yeah. I've got a couple. Go ahead, Mark. Sure. Um, sure. Being a part of this sh- uh, this particular show, I've uh, I've heard an, many. Uh, accounts of serial killers, uh, mm-hmm. somebody that is, try, you know, uh, trying to rid themselves of something from their childhood, and they keep killing over uh-huh. and over, or they have a mm-hmm. particular type that they're after, hookers yeah. or whatever. 
um, what did Ted get out of his random choices? Well, one thing that we know, he didn't want to kill any women outside of his own race. He only wanted Caucasian women. Um, He never picked anybody that was black or American Indian. I know of a, I was told by a detective, one young woman, an American Indian, while while Buddy was hunting, she tried to make herself available to him. She didn't know he was a serial killer, and she wanted to be picked up by him. But he, he, he didn't want anything to do with her. Now, Bundy said there was, you know, some people, there, there's some myth out there. Some people think that what set Bundy off was, and the reason why he killed the way he did, because um, his girlfriend, Diane Edwards, was really a beautiful young woman with dark hair parted down the middle. Uh, you know, maybe that set him off to do that, but the answer to that would be no. And in fact, and I've always known that, but I've recently learned that even he told Bill Hagmeyer no. He said no. Giant had nothing to do with that. But well, um, wasn't his first kill a pair, um, reportedly when he was fourteen? Well, yeah, it's very possible. I, I, I lean to that being a valid kill. I, I think he likely killed Anne Marie Burr. She was eight. And what he did was, he went through, if it was Bundy, he went through an unlocked window that was raised a little bit because of a cable wire that, that was, that was you know, running through it. And they didn't, like, even though they couldn't lock it that way, they, there was a way to secure it, but, he, but nothing was done. He went through that window, uh, and he left some grass clippings on the carpet. He had to pass probably the parents' room, which was on the first floor. He went upstairs to Anne Marie's room, and they that I think the four the four year old sister was probably in the same room too, uh, but she, she could have been in another room. And he, there was other kids down the basement, and he took her out th- through the front door. And when when Mrs. Burr and I had a chance to interview uh, her before she uh, about a year before she passed away for the book The Bunny Murders, and um, she and when she got up. And went out and talked. She had felt an unease anyway. She felt like something was wrong. Uh, she had been feeling like something was wrong outside of her house at night. They both did, Mr. and Mrs. Burr, uh, that, that they would hear things moving around. They didn't think it was animals. And, well, as if their house was being cased for some reason. But when she came out of her bedroom, she looked at the front door and it was standing wide open. Hmm. They ran all around the the only the only person missing was Anne Marie. Of course, she was never recovered. Do I think Bundy did it? Yes, I I, I, I think he did. And the only reason why I think he did is because although he almost always denied it, he alluded to it to doc to uh, not doctor but to Ronald M. Holmes, the uh, late criminologist from Louisville. Holmes had such a good relationship with Bundy that Bob Keppel, the Washington State detective, told me one day on the phone, he said, had Holmes and Bundy not had a falling out, uh, I believe uh, Bundy would have confessed all his crimes to Holmes. He said Holmes was his golden boy, and but they had a falling out, and of course that didn't happen. But um, he said to Holmes, he said, you know, in the third person thing, that he was already familiar uh, with with Stephen Michaud back in like 1980 or so, uh, 1981, all that stuff, and he said, he said, um, the the first person that this this killer like this person killed was a girl as young as eight or nine, 
And he said, and the authorities were looking for someone who, they were looking for this person who was also being like uh, questioned for murders, who was suspected of committing murders at Lake Sammamish. Well, of course, that's him. Mm. That double abduction, that's Bundy. So Bundy alluded to it with a very person that, that, that Bob Keppel said uh, that, you know, he was Bundy's golden boy. He, he was one to make these confessions to. So do I think it's probably true? I think it is. And also, we know for a fact he killed a hitchhiker. Uh, he picked up in Tumwater, Washington, south of Seattle, and murdered her. And he slipped with Bob Keppel and said that he also murdered somebody in 72, but then he quickly denied it. And Keppel kept pressing on it because he felt like it was true and it likely was true. Probably what it was was it was the killing of a, of a girl or a pre, of a teenage girl or a preteen girl. And that was something he probably didn't want to talk about because in a third-person confession of Bundy, not in the wife confessions where he was really coming clean, but when he was speaking in the third person, he was talking about a particular serial, serial killer, and he meant himself. Yeah. He said this person is responsible for at least um, a half a dozen murders of uh, like young girls, which would be early teenage years or maybe even preteens. Now, we know he killed two 12-year-olds of, of Pocatello, Idaho, and his last victim, Kim Leach, was 12. Uh, he said that Culver looked a little bit older, like maybe she could have been 15. I mean, if that, as if that would make that much difference, but he thought she was a little bit older. But he, you know, you, you, you couldn't look at Kim Leach and not think she, that she's a day over 12. So, you know, so, and you know, when he was caught in Florida, he had these like uh, high school cheerleader magazines. So, you know, he had this thing where he was, he would, I think he would hunt college women first, but when that came uh, to be difficult, if he wasn't finding any, uh, he would go to somebody younger. Or if the opportunity arose, mm. he would capture somebody very young. In fact, yeah, I get the feeling there's a lot of those crimes of opportunity with him. It's like yeah. there's this undercurrent compulsion running 24-7. And how close it yeah. gets to the surface depends on what triggers happen. Well, exactly. Now, Bundy himself admitted that there were times when, of course, when he called it the entity and that real desire to murder rose up and he, and he got into an altered state. He said, because he knew he was going to kill under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But there were, but, but, but just what you're talking about, uh, Burl, he, there, he said there were crimes of opportunity that came along, and even though he didn't have the desire to kill, because the opportunity was there, right? he he went for it. And probably what happened was, once a girl, say it was a hitchhiker, once she got in his car, and he saw the possibilities of being able to murder her, then that, that alter state would, would begin to take over anyway. So, but yeah. So it's, yeah, he, he was certainly was a planner of murder, but he was also an opportunist. What did, what did he get out personally? from the killings oh it was uh, he just loved it he, he just loved it he told Bill Hagmar this he said I don't understand why people don't understand I just enjoyed killing people he did it so he could possess them now here's what here, here's the kind of thinking that goes in with and it's more than just Bundy some of these killers are like this but this was definitely the way it was with Bundy he would, uh, for example, he would, his basic M.O. 
was strangling them from behind while I had sexual intercourse with them. And he would use various things to do it. He would have a, an electrical cord he carried with his kit. Sometimes he would use a, a blue sock or, or, a, or a stocking. But the thing of it is, he strangled them from behind. But, but he described to Bill Hagmeyer, he said he would do things like, he said he used to like to see the life go out of their eyes and he liked to see their last breath. And I think he also said uh, that, you know, like when he would, you know, he, he would kill them and turn them over, he would often feel that last breath. So he was very involved in that. And, and, and at moments like that, he would say they're mine. It's like they're mine forever. And that's how these people think. And Ed Kemper thought that way. And a lot of serial killers who are sexual serial killers think that way. So it's a personal thing. And uh, they, they, they just love it. It's very mystical for them. That's why the places, if you go to the place, if he returned to the places where he killed or where he dumped the bodies, if they were different, and very oftentimes they, they were different, each place would become a mystical place to him. It would become like something very sacred special. ground. Yes, sacred ground. Interesting. That's <clears throat> that's disturbing. You, yeah, duh. It is. Yeah. It is. Very especially to his victims found it very disturbing. <laughs> oh it, yeah, very disturbing. Well, and Bobby, once he owned like them, that. it's kind of like Robert Lee Yates. Once he'd killed them and he'd owned them and taken complete control. He would have sex with them after they were dead as, like, further proof. You know? Yeah, and listen, Yates, to this day, enjoys thinking about those things and masturbating to those things. To this day, according to, the, according to what his girlfriend told me, <laughs> or his fiancée, yeah, he that's still an, enjoys that. That's you another can't take thing. that away from them. Yeah. That's another so, thing that really blows me away is that there are women that seek out these individuals. Yes. Well, you know, I don't understand that at all. No, they have real problems. They have, well, just think about that. Who would do that? I mean, I, I, you know, when I was, when I was writing the book, The Bloody Martyrs, people were saying to me, we're going to try to contact um, Carol Boone. I said, why on earth would I want to contact her? She was so clueless until the end all the information I need from but I don't want to talk to people that are completely clueless. But, but yeah, these women who go after these guys, it's just, it's unbelievable. And yet, they all have these weirdos showing up. I mean, what, what, uh, Richard Ramirez got married just like yeah. he did in prison. Can you imagine that? What kind of what woman? Oh, boy, women I, think? I'll tell you how they think. I saw an interview on TV with this woman. This guy had murdered his wife and his children and put their dead bodies in his storage locker. And he moves uh -huh. from Washington to, I think, Idaho. Yeah. And gets some another girlfriend there. And this bill keeps coming in the mail every month for that storage locker. Well, mm -hmm. he never tells her what's in it. And she gets tired of paying it. And she goes, what the hell? I'll just stop paying it and see what happens. Well, of course. Oh, yeah, well, they'll find it. <laughs> so, so they, uh, you know, it goes up for auction. Someone bids on it. They open it up. And there's a corpse of his uh, dead wife and his dead yeah. kids. And yeah. so the the gator viewer asked her, said, if you would have known what was in that locker, what would you have done? He said, well, I would have kept paying the bill. 
That's right. That's right. And, and that's even why would you keep paying the bill? He murdered his wife. He murdered his kids. Oh, yeah. Well, he was yeah. drinking then. He wouldn't do that yeah. to me. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, talk oh, about yeah. rationalizing it away. It's amazing. Well, listen, these women on Facebook sometimes, because they know I write about Bundy, they talk about their attraction to him and how, you know, how, and I've seen their pictures and I said, you know, uh, they think that if Bundy were uh, alive today, they could woo him over and everything would be hunky dory. Oh, yeah, sure. I said, listen, I, I said, listen, you're the type that he'd love to cut your head off. Take it home to his apartment and have sex with it. That's the way it is. Yeah, that's all you would be to him. And uh, I, I don't know what's wrong with people like this. They're they're, they're kind of way out there. It's just real strange. So yeah, I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> One of uh, did either of you see the movie Mystic River by Clint Eastwood? Oh, rings a bell. Tim Robbins oh. and uh, oh, you mean. Uh, Oh, Mystic River? Yes. Yes, and, and, and yeah, I think so. And, yes, a long time ago. And he also made one play Misty for me. Well, well which was. Right. But they, and, uh, and, and, and that was where the lady yes, was, uh, couldn't, couldn't get over it. Yeah, I had yeah. one of those. So in Mystic oh, River, were? the basic premise of the plot is a couple's daughter is murdered. Oh, and. Okay. During the yes. film, the film as it progresses, they think uh -huh. it's Tim Robbins, the wife's brother, who had mm. killed the daughter, and the husband oh. acts on it and kills him. But and after after the after he is killed, it comes mm -hmm. out that it was two local boys and not Tim Robbins. Boy, and the, in the creepiest, most disturbing yeah. scene I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, how do you wife comes to the husband after this revelation and she mm -hmm. puts her arms around him and says you are exactly the husband I want someone Ooh, wow. that will do whatever <laughs> is necessary to take care of me and, and he said what is it I don't know about my wife <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no no because it was so creepy because she now knows yes. he oh, killed yeah. her brother but she is saying that it's okay right. Oh my. Because you were protecting my family. Oh, my Lord. And if you go back to that film at the end and watch that scene yeah. again, it I is chilling. That's the creepiest uh, damn thing I've heard in a long time. Well, yeah. you know, go to the end of the movie and you'll see yeah. that point when the, yeah, you know, the people are coming over to the house for the funeral. Yeah, you know, after the After the graveside service. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure he slept with one eye open. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, he no. knows he's safe. He I mean, is, no, he is completely secure because oh, yeah. she is validating him. Yeah. She is saying, you are my man, and there yeah. is nothing to fear. Yeah. Because yeah. you are oh, exactly what I want from my husband. Take care yeah, of yeah. us. <laughs> Very creepy. Yeah, real, what are you say, girl? Yeah, <laughs> this is too weird for me. <laughs> right. Now, I, I, got, I got a question for the you. The whole cast was great in that movie. Yeah, good ensemble there. Far away bit. <laughs> you know, that just reminded me of that woman when I was 18 years old that picked me up at a basketball game and I took her back to my place. Had a little bunk beds there. We're on the top bunk. Mm -hmm. We're making out. She looks me right in the eye and she says, hurt me. A real man would know how to hurt me. <laughs> and I looked at oh. her. I said, "You don't it's know how to person. access." Said, "You don't know how to accessorize." <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Wow. <laughs> that really hurt you. thinking, what, what, what did I do on this one? <laughs> How did I, I the get this thing? I've known some strange, strange people, especially when you do a true crime. So this is the question I ask you is, it must have been some of these people who contacted you that were full of crap. That couldn't they be are. And Well, yeah, now I, I get contacted by so many. Some people are sincere, but then when I find out they're in the, um, somebody wasn't in their area at the time, they go, oh, okay, I, you know, I understand. Or, or, or one said, are you sure he didn't come through such and such city? I said, no, he came through a different way, so he, he couldn't have been. And most people are saying, okay, well, I wasn't sure. I had this experience. It was a guy that looked like Bundy. Some people say, well, now, there was a guy with a Volkswagen. This was even before Bundy had purchased his Volkswagen in 1973. He did ball lists and things like that, but but uh, but he wasn't in that area. So you do have that. Then you have some people that are just lying, and you know it. And uh, so they know so, it. You know, they know it. And But then you get these other people, and sometimes, if I'm fortunate, uh, somebody that I've already worked with that I know is a valid person will sometimes give me the name of somebody else. And um, so, you know, that, I mean, that's always good. And um, usually when that happens, and I can verify even that with some other people, but it starts to come together. And there are some things that you'll hear about, and I know there's another researcher out there, and he, and he will say this, you can tell by what the woman said that Bundy said it's him. And that is true. Bundy had a certain way of doing things. He would say things like, uh, excuse me, miss, or uh, ma'am, excuse me, but, uh, you know, and they, oh, she would say, I can't help. Oh, that's okay. And he'd be very nice. And he would have certain catchphrases he would use. And, of course, um, when you start hearing that from somebody and then you've got a couple people saying the same thing out of the same area or in this case that they were there together <laughs> talking to Bundy and everything. So you know you've got some really, really good things. So here's how I classify it. I classify some as valid, 100%, you know it's Bundy. Then I have another classification, it was likely Bundy, but we can't prove it. Then there's another classification which says, well, it could be Bundy, but it could be somebody else too. But because there might be an earmark or two, here's a story you judge for yourself. And then, no, it's not Bundy at all. So, yeah, so you have to go through this and kind of weed stuff out. But, but once you get to know these people and you think they're valid and you get a little bit more into their life, you can see that they live in the area. Or, or they have contacts in the area uh, from from where this happened, and there's people there that know them. And so you know, there, there's a lot of ways to verify people. But sometimes you know you can say, absolutely say yes. Other times say it's very likely. But then there's going to be some times I don't know. But because this person lived in the area at the time, I'm going to give this to you. A, a lady contacted me once, and I have this in the upcoming book. She said, "Listen, I had a guy." Pull up in a Volkswagen. I was in Seattle. It was in the first week of June of 1975. And um, she said, he tried to get me to, it was very nice. He was very polite. He said he tried to get me to get, get into his car. He offered me a ride. I was walking. I said no. He was a little insistent. But then after I, you know, just told him I'm just not going to do it, he drove off. He never tried to do anything. She said, do you know if Bundy was there that week? I said, well, I can go back to my uh, book, see if I can locate anything in the record that I might have put in my book, The Bundy Murders. 
And um, I said, but I'm thinking at the same time it probably wasn't because I know how busy Bundy was in Utah and Colorado doing things and you know but I, I can't can't guarantee it well sure enough buddy came home that first week of june um so she she, she said it was in the first week of june and Bundy got back on by uh, maybe the 6th of june or the 5th I, I, i'm not I, I think the 6th so so it was right around there and he was home for a week so maybe this lady you know it's right in there so that I makes said, well, sense that yeah, makes sense because, so. like with Robert yeah. Lee Yates, uh, yeah. he would travel to the other side of the state for his uh, National Guard meetings, mm-hmm. and he would get over there. You got to figure underneath the surface at all times, this uh-huh. this thing is running. You know, the script oh, is yeah. running, and anything that's going to trigger is going to trigger it. And right. without fail, he'd go out as National Guard, and he'd kill somebody, not uh-huh. because he had the overwhelming, but it was just like. I haven't killed anybody in a week. You know, it's, yeah, you know, sure. I need a McDonald's yeah, burger. And, oh yeah. And sometimes, when it was really strong, you know, mm-hmm. he'd go out hunting. But other times, it was just like you say, a crime of opportunity. You know, yeah. oh, there's one. Yeah. I, if I got time to do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's tragic, well, really tragic. Well, listen to this. You know how I told you that uh, I did my re- well, I did my research for the Bundy murders, 2000 and two- 2007, 2008. It really started in 2006, but I really got down to ordering case files so all of 2007, almost all of 2008, and um, and and then the book was published in 2009. I told you I didn't do it again until a number of years later, published in 2016. Well, in the intervening years, I I had a woman contact me, and she said. I think I had a run-in with Bundy. I'm not sure, but I, I think I did because after he was arrested, I said, boy, that looks like the guy. And she described his car. It was a beige Volkswagen. And she said to me, now, um, keep in mind, this was not, I, I didn't think I was going to be really, you know, writing again because I published the second book. And, but but she, she, I thought, well, I'll keep the information. And then she said to me, she said, look, I think it was, in, and she named it uh, 1973 or 1975. I can't remember now because at some time later than that, when I thought I wasn't going to write the book, I just dumped the information or I deleted it back and I can't remember because it was an electronic file. But um, she, she, she described him to a T. Now, here's something I had forgotten about. Bundy, I always thought Bundy admitted, I, I had forgotten from the Bundy murders that Bundy admitted to killing two people in Oregon. And for some reason, I was just thinking one. So when she either said 73 or 75, but I think it was 73, when she said that, I said, well, it couldn't be Bundy because uh, he did his thing at, at OSU in 1974, and he killed, kidnapped Kenny Parks and murdered her. So she said, oh, okay. And then I, I wish I could have kept enough. If I'd have known, if I'd have remembered there was two, then I would have said, yeah, it could very well have been him. So I, I told myself later when I discovered this that there was actually two then. I thought, I don't know how I lost her information, but I, I'm never going to lose this information again. And from that moment on, I haven't. And uh, But but here, I kind of convinced her it wasn't, and yet it likely wasn't. Here's what she said. She said he was going very slowly on the OSU campus in Corvallis, 
and moving slowly, and I'm busy talking, and I stepped out into the street, and he nearly ran into me. And she told me what he said. She said he was very polite. But again, he was asking her to get in the car. He'd be happy to give her a ride somewhere. And they stood there and talked a moment. And here's what was interesting. They talked for like a minute or so, long enough for her to get a really good look at him and, and, and to uh, hear what his voice sounded like. And she described his car very well. And so uh, it was likely Bundy. In fact, I would almost say that that's probably an Adam Bundy, but because of how she said, she was so convinced it was him. And she just wanted to tell me the story. So I kind of unconvinced her, which was a shame. And if she ever contacts me again, I'll say that probably was Bundy. But in any event, he was he was hunting there again. So Bundy was a creature of habit. So you look at uh, Corvallis and he kidnaps Kathy Parks on May 6th of 1974. Um, you think, oh, he's not going to go back there again. But he did. He also kidnapped, and I'll be talking about this in the next book, but he also you know, kid, kidnapped... Um, um, Donna Manson from uh, from the uh, Central Washington, uh, not Central Washington, but uh, the Evergreen State College mm-hmm. in Olympia, and uh, and I, I don't need to talk about that anymore because I've written about that a lot. But he tried to abduct another woman on the campus on a different date. I think like oh maybe a number of months either before or after. And uh, so I'll be writing about that. So he was a creature of habit. He would often go back to the same locations, not just where he would get victims from before, but he would often, when he'd go out of state, going to Colorado, or you, he would stop for gas at the same locations. He was kind of like that creature of habit. Right. So anyway, just some interesting stuff. But you're right, they're always on. People you, like this are always on. Anyway, go ahead. Do you, uh, do you think he picked Florida uh, specifically because it had the death penalty? There's a possibility of that. Uh, because Emmanuel Tenet said he's got, and this is a guy that would work for the defense, and, you know, he just really analyzed Bundy very well. He said Bundy um, was almost like of two minds on that. He's like, you know, if, if he asked somebody once, this is what I've heard. Who who has the death penalty that, that I mean, they're actually using it? And somebody mentioned Florida, maybe Texas, or whatever. And um, so th- there's a possibility that he did go there for that reason, because Buddy wasn't a stupid man. He was he, he had high intellect, and he, he surely he would have known that. And Florida was not like any other state. Once they nabbed him, they were not. he was not going to escape from there. In fact, I'll tell you something that a detective told me to turn off the tape. When I was in, please turn off the tape. I'll just tell you a story. I said, okay, great. I turned off the tape. I got a call from somebody, and I'm not going to tell you who or what department this was, but I got a call, and this person said, if Bundy gets off for any reason, technicalities or whatever, we're going to give you a call and tell you that we found a body along the road and we think it's Bundy. And then you'll take it from there. He said, okay. And that's if he would have gotten out. So Florida had no intention of letting him live or get away. They weren't going to be like some some, some other state. So it, it could be that maybe that. And you got to ask yourself this. Why did he dawdle getting out of Florida? Yeah, he just, he waited for him. <laughs> yeah, he's practically waiting to get caught. 
He's in, he's in Pensacola behind the building with his lights off when Officer David Lee spots him and, and starts, you know, you know, giving chase. So you got to ask yourself, is there something to it? It could very well be. Hey, uh, Bundy was executed at the end of January 89. Mm-hmm. 89. What, what? Do you think keeps him relevant? Thirty uh, years question. Late. I think what keeps him as a top tier of uh, serial killers, even though some have killed more, Bundy is very different. He's um, not just a diabolical killer, but he is on the outside. He's a college graduate, a former law student, political campaigner. Someone that had a lot going in his life, if he only would have just gone that way. And I said in the preface of the Bundy murders that there's a type of disconnect that goes on in people. On the one hand, they see the outward Bundy, nice, affable, uh, you know, friendly, willing to help people. Uh, girls liked him, women found him attractive. And then if you look at what he really was that would come out only with his victims, you've got one of the most diabolical humans who ever walked the earth. And so that creates a disconnect in a lot of people's minds. When they see some of these other killers... They look like they're killers. They look like they're killers. They're walking down the street. You know, we want to go to the other side. They look like they're killers, not Bundy. And that's one of the things that, yeah, that that, that causes people to really want to know more twisted, bud. I had Ann Rule, bless her heart, Bobby Lunch in New York one year, Mm -hmm. and we were talking Uh about Bundy. Uh I said, Ann, you knew this guy. You know, she told Mm -hmm. me that she took him to a dance. He thought she needed to kind of unwind a bit, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, so she takes him to this dance, and there was this girl with dark hair, part of the middle, really very attractive. And she's going, mm-hmm. Ted, Ted, ask her to dance. Ted, oh, ask her to yeah. dance. Maybe you can go yeah. out with her, you know? Yeah, alone. But, yeah, but I mean, she didn't know, you know, the. No. Because she didn't know he was a serial killer. And, no. And he, he wouldn't do it. She said, All he did is he got no. so drunk. He wouldn't yeah. dance with her. He just went into this funk, got so drunk, she had to take him home and dress him and put him to bed. And then, yeah. of course, later when it turned out, the stranger beside me, you know, he was, yeah. he was, uh, and she talks about him with such loving memories, you know. Oh, yeah. Ted this, yeah. Ted that. I said, Ann, yeah. you got to tell me straight mm-hmm. out. Yeah, yeah. Which was the Ted Bundy? Who was Ted Bundy? Was he that nice guy that was your good friend that worked at the crisis clinic or whatever the hell it was? Said, or uh-huh. was he the horrible monster chopping people's heads off and having sex with their eye sockets? You know? Yeah. Which was it? Yeah, she right. said, the, yeah. the, the horrible person who chopped their heads off and had sex with yeah. their eyes. That was Ted right. Bundy. Yeah. Right. Um... I've got a, I, I, there, there's a woman that lives in uh, Utah, her name is Francine uh, Bardol, and she was friends with Leslie Knudsen, and they lived on the same block, and uh, during the summer of 75, Bundy was staying with Leslie because they had been dating. And Leslie uh, uh, Knudsen, you know, would use Francine as a babysitter sometimes, and uh, so she would keep her son Josh, and then uh, then Francine's son, Larry, would go out. And because Larry and Josh were always together, Bundy would take them places, right? Mm-hmm. Take them to the pool and take them to the drive-in. And one night when he took Larry, I've, inter- both, I've, I've, I've interviewed both Francine and Larry. They're really nice people. And um, and so Bundy took them to a drive-in um, one, one night. And I think he t- took them to this particular drive-in 
on a couple of occasions. But on this one night, Bundy said, stay here. I want to go to the uh, like restroom or whatever. And he was a long time getting back. So the boys got out of the car and they went and they found him and he was standing in front of the, girl, the women's restroom watching the women come and go. Now, that speaks to me that something was starting to rise. Right, in him. the devil was rising, all right. It was rising. And he was and shopping. So that, and that's right. And so he knew he couldn't do anything with the boys. So what, what, what that tells me is he probably, once the movie was over and he took the boys home, he, he went back out because uh, Francine told me that Leslie had gotten so frustrate, frustrated with him because he's such a nocturnal creature that he would... Um, be asleep, you know, half the day or all day, and then he would go out at night. And she said so often she would make Leslie would call Francine and say, "Could you, could could Josh come over and like spend the night with Larry, or could you keep him till midnight or whatever?" Ted, uh, I want to go out, and then she called later and canceled. She said Ted can't do it. So you know, he he was out a lot, and yeah. but I, I, but but having. Having that elixir of watching those women, and it, that, that that's like a replay of Lake Sammamish, yeah. because he was yeah hunting at the restroom. That's how he got Denise Naslin that day on July fourteenth of seventy four at Lake Sammamish. So you know that was building in him. So yeah, these are just really interesting stories. And and Josh said that, and I'm sure, sorry, I said, I mean, Larry said that when they would go to the pool, Ted would play this thing called Shark. And he would go under the water and be swimming under the water, and he'd grab either Larry's j- uh, leg or, or Josh's leg, and he would, like, bite. Not, not drawing blood, but he would bite. And Larry said, we don't like this this game. We, we don't want to play this game anymore. But uh, knowing he what did. he was, I guess, it, I guess it was apropos, as they say. <laughs> now, my, my brother was working in the, uh, the only time in his life he worked in the prosecutor's <laughs> office, uh-huh. uh, Fed prosecutor's office in Seattle. And... Uh-huh. Uh, Bundy's girlfriend came to them and mentioned this thing that she thought it was him. Oh. And the bite marks. She said the bites. He bites my ass. Uh And that was something that hadn't been, you know, put in the paper, you know. Yeah. But she had a feeling it was the car, the guy, you know. And my brother told me this. This girl comes Mm -hmm. in and I think it's so-and-so. Because he bites my ass just like that. Well, you know what? They could have gotten that. Uh, the, uh, they have, to this day, they have the uh, mold that was made of Bundy's teeth uh, in the, uh, uh, the State Archives of Florida. I should say the Florida State Archives. So you can, you know, they, Bundy had really bad teeth. And they were jagged and going in different directions. Some of them just weren't 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 good teeth. He he desperately needed braces but never got them. The bottom line is they were easy to match. But but Ken Katsaris, Ken Katsaris, the sheriff in Florida said we weren't telling Bundy we were going to take him and have a mold made of his teeth. He said if he had gotten wind of what we were going to do, he had slammed his teeth up against something. And yeah. all you have to do is make one ship on a tooth. And the whole thing's off. And uh, so, you know, they didn't tell him. But, yeah, 
it was just interesting. It, you know, that was an animalistic thing. He, he, I don't think he planned to do that. It just kind of came deep from within, and he made that bite. In fact, he made it twice. It's like a, a double. It's like an overlapping bite, tw- two bites. But they were able to match it, and the people, the uh, the the forensic people who were there, the the people, the evidence people, they were smart, and they laid a uh, a ruler, a small ruler there. Uh, also, and as they photographed it, and um, I even published a book of um, Bundy's um, corpse, close up of his face, in Enigma. Uh, it's a p- part of a number of photographs that the metal that the medical examiner took that day uh, after he was executed. But uh, yeah, he, uh, he, uh, Bill Hagmar told me one day on the phone. He said that Bundy said to him, "What am I going to say to God?" And I thought, indeed, Ted, what are you going to say? Yeah, as (laughs) if you're going to get an audience. (laughs) Oh, my. 